If you have a Bible, we are in uh, John 7. I'm going to do a repeat of a text that I preached two weeks ago, and so I'm not going to um, cover all that's in the text as I tried to do two weeks ago, but I'm going to take a little different slant for New Year's on this text and talk about God's time versus man's time. You should find an outline in your bulletin, and there are printed messages at both exits. You can get up and get one now if you'd like, or grab one on the way out. They've got kind of a purple cover this week. And um, all of the messages for the last 22 years are on the website, and you can access them there either in printed or in um, audio form. And appreciate your prayers, too, as the messages are now uh, on Bible.org, and um, they get a lot more hits than our website, and I get emails from people that have accessed them there. So please pray for God to bless His Word. Um, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for He was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill Him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booze, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples may see your works which you were doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, referring to his miracles, show yourself to the world. And then John adds the ex- explanatory comment, For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. A young man once came to W. E. Gladstone, who was Prime Minister in England back in the 19th century, and uh, said, Mr. Gladstone, I would appreciate uh, your giving me a few minutes in which I might lay before you my plans for the future. I would like to study law. Yes, said the great statesman, and what then? And then, sir, I would like to gain entrance to the bar of England. Uh, Yes, young man. And what then? Well, then, sir, I hope to have a place in Parliament in the House of Lords. Uh, Yes, young man. And what then? Pressed Gladstone. Well, then I hope to do great things for, for Britain. Yes, young man. And what then? Well, then, sir, I hope to retire and take life easy. Yes, young man, and what then, he tenaciously asked. Well, Mr. Gladstone, I suppose that then I will die. Yes, young man, 
And what then? The young man hesitated and said, I never thought any further than that, sir. To which Gladstone looked at the young man very sternly and steadily. And he said, young man, you're a fool. Go home and think life through. Well, as I said, because the new year is almost gone and we have a new year staring us in the face, uh, the old year almost gone, the new year upon us, I thought it would be profitable to go back over our text, not covering the whole thing as I did last time, but zeroing in on the theme of God's time versus man's time. In verse 6, you'll note that Jesus says to his half-brothers who advised him to go up to the feast and make himself known, my time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. And so Jesus is drawing a contrast between how he spent his time uh, in light of God's purpose for him and how his brothers lived their lives. And I want to develop with you this morning the thought that because life is short and eternity is, after all, forever, live by God's time, not by man's time. And the first point is one that's very obvious to all of us and yet one that we need to think about often, and that is simply that life is short and eternity is forever. Billy Graham was once asked uh, what he was most surprised by in life, he said, it's brevity. It's brevity. I read this account by an older man, a perspective on how he viewed time differently as he aged. He said, days were plentiful and cheap when I was young, like penny candy. I always had a pocket full and spent them casually. Now my supply is diminished and their value has soared. Each one becomes worth its weight in the gold of dawn. Suddenly I live in unaccustomed thrift, cherishing hours the way lovers prize moments. Even at that, when the week is ended, it seems I've gone through another fortune. A day doesn't go as far as it used to. I can sure relate to those comments, as I said, having just come from being with my dad on his 90th birthday and seeing him failing. Um, you know, the, that was sad, but it was also very sobering because as I looked at him, I thought, you know, he's only a little over 23 years older than I am. And if I'm even alive in 23 years, there I am. And life goes by very, very Quickly, and uh, as we sang this morning, we really are a vapor, and then eternity is forever. You know, as you think about Jesus and how he spent time and how God ordained his days, I think if he had lived in our times, his parents would have recognized this is an unusually gifted young man, and they would have put him on the fast track of child education for gifted students, and You know, when he made the big splash there in Jerusalem when he was 12 at the temple, I mean, hot dog, he's on his way. They would have put him forward and gotten him preaching. And by the time he was 20, 
He could have stadiums filled like, I hate to even mention in the same breath, but I saw on TV, God forbid any of you should even consider it, but Joel Osteen is coming to Phoenix. Oh my goodness. And they show this big stadium of people filled, and you can buy your tickets now uh, to hear heresy. But, but Jesus would have been successful by the time he was 20. He would have had a following, you know. And uh, with a little PR work, maybe he could have toned down some of the offensive comments that got the Pharisees riled up. And think how much more he could have done if he had lived to be 70 or 80. That's man's way of thinking. God's way was totally different, wasn't it? He didn't begin. I mean, Jesus, sinless Son of God, knew enough theology at age 12 to confound the the religious guys in, in Jerusalem. And he didn't begin ministering until he was about 30. And then in three short years, he was done. And he made this remarkable statement. In John 17, 4, he prayed, Father, I glorified you on the earth. And here's the the remarkable thing. Having accomplished the work which you gave me to do in three years, he did it. He finished it. And he was gone. If we want to be like Jesus, then we have to think and live with the awareness of how short life is. And one day we're going to be standing before God to give an account of how we fulfilled our work that he gave us to do. One of the Psalms that is most profound in this regard is the Psalm written by Moses, Psalm 90, where he reflects on the eternality of God and how short life is. Consider Moses was in the wilderness And if you've ever done the math, there were over 600,000 Israeli young men and older men that died in the wilderness in 40 years. That's a lot of death. And he's surrounded by that, and he himself would not live to go into the promised land. And he wrote that profound Psalm 90, and he concludes it with this prayer in verse uh, verse 17. He says, let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. And confirm for us the work of our hands. And then as if he's musing on it again, he repeats, yes, confirm the work of our hands. Now this is Moses, one of the greatest leaders who's ever lived. And uh, if he had to pray that, certainly all of us should pray, oh God, life is short, eternity is forever. Lord, would you have your favor upon my life? And Lord, in your grace, would you confirm the work you've given me to do? Well, Jesus' brothers give us a negative example. They were living for man's time. And Jesus says their time was always opportune. He says you guys can go up to the feast whenever you want. And your time is always opportune. And the implication of that is they were not living Under God's time, Don Carson in his commentary says that Jesus meant that what they did was utterly without significance as far as God was concerned. 
And we can draw three implications about what it means to live by man's time. First of all, those living by man's time are clearly not living under the lordship of Jesus Christ. John explains, as I mentioned when I read the text in verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. In our last study, I pointed out, here are his brothers. They were raised with him. What it was like to be raised by, with a perfect brother would have been difficult, I imagine. But they knew him better than anyone. Uh, they saw his life. They heard his teaching when he began his ministry. Undoubtedly, before that, he had talked with them about the things of God. They saw his miracles. Um, and yet, even though they were good religious Jews who observed the feast like this feast of booze, they didn't believe in Jesus as Savior and Lord. What a tragedy. As I pointed out, at least two of them later came to know him. You ask, well, why didn't they? Probably, I'm guessing, because they thought they were good religious Jews. They looked at the Gentiles, and as all of us do, we compare ourselves with others, but invariably with those who are worse than we are, and we think, hey, I'm doing okay. You know, I'm not like that guy. And so they patted themselves on the back as good religious Jews, but if you're a good religious Jew, you don't need a Savior from sin. And so, if you want to live by God's time and not waste your life living by man's time, the first order of business is to make sure you've put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and that all of your life is in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. If He is Lord of all, then He's obviously Lord of your time. And so, begin to seek Him earnestly, trying to figure out, Lord... How do you want me to spend my life? How do you want me to use my time in a way that when I check out of here, I can say, Father, I glorified you on earth and I accomplished whatever it was you gave me to do. Because if you live by man's time, your life is ultimately just going to be a vapor and go up in smoke. It'll be futile. The second thing about those living by man's time is they go along with their culture apart from Christ. Jesus draws this sharp distinction between his brother's time and his time. And the point is, if you're using your time as our culture does, then you aren't living by God's time. You see, all the Jews in that day went up to these feasts. There were three great feasts that had been prescribed in the Old Testament. As we saw last time, this was the third in the fall, the Feast of Booze. And the brothers went up because, hey, that's the thing everybody does in our culture. Everybody goes up. But you see, the sad thing is, they went up without Jesus. They hadn't believed in Him. He sent them on on their own. And uh, so even though this was a God-ordained Ritual they were going through at the feast. <clears throat> they were just going through it because it was the thing that Jewish young men went through. They did it without reality because they did it without faith in Jesus. Now, to, to extrapolate that into our culture, well, we don't live in a religious culture. So, cer certainly, I hope, none of you would try to go along with the materialism and the 
living for sensual pleasure and all of the stuff that our culture tries to foist on us. But the reality is you can even live in the Christian wing of our culture and just do stuff because, well, that's what Christians do. They go to church. They take communion. We go through all the the rituals. But you can go through it without living reality with Christ. And that's to live by man's time, not by God's time. A third thing, those living by man's time operate by worldly wisdom, not by God's wisdom. And as we saw last time, his brothers offered Jesus some worldly wise counsel on how he can further his career, if you will. Uh, I think they may have meant well, but their counsel was quite in line, as I pointed out, with Satan's temptation when he told Jesus, here's how you can get a following. Go up to the temple, leap off the highest point of the temple, have the angels bear you gently down into the, the crowds below, and they'll be in your hand, and you'll have a following. It's probably true. But, of course, they wouldn't have been a believing following. It just would have been a crowd that followed. And so his brothers give him this advice. Verse 4, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, these miracles, show yourself to the world. Carson again points out, By the world, undoubtedly the brothers meant, show yourself to everyone, but John's gospel is filled with irony. John loved to do kind of tongue-in-cheek statements that on one level were true, but you, you read it and you go, wait a minute, he's saying something more than he just said. You know, we'll see when we get to chapter 13. Judas went out and it was night. And John doesn't just mean it was dark outside. It was. But John means something deeper. It was really night when Judas went out to betray Jesus. So here, uh, the brothers say, show yourself to the world. And uh, no doubt John is tongue-in-cheek showing, yeah, he could show himself to the world and they would make him the political Messiah. We saw that in chapter 6. He feeds the multitudes. They want to make him king. But it wasn't in faith or repentance. It wasn't coming to him as Savior and Lord. It was, hey, he'd make a good leader. Let's put him up there in office kind of thing. Now, in one sense, Jesus had no intent of showing himself to the world, as he mentions in chapter 14, verse 22. And yet, in another sense, as as Carson puts it, it is in Jerusalem where Jesus reveals himself most dramatically Not in the spectacular miracles the brothers want, but in the ignominy of the cross, the very cross by which Jesus draws all men to himself and becomes the Savior of the world. And as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, the cross is foolishness to the wisdom of the world, but to us who are the called, he says, it is the power and wisdom of God. One of the books that has most impacted my life over the years, I read it when I first, when I was in my 20s, and I go back to it over and over again, is uh, Elizabeth Elliot's Shadow of the Almighty. 
It's a story of her husband, first husband, Jim Elliott, who at age 28 was martyred down in Ecuador by the fierce Aoka tribe that he and some other young men, four others died with him, including uh, Nate Saint, whom my parents were friends with. Uh, but they were trying to reach this fierce tribe with the gospel. When Elliot was the age of some of you in college, he wrote words that maybe you've heard. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your life. You can't lose the rewards in heaven that you will get when you serve the Lord. And so Elliot was drawing that piece of wisdom in that crisp sentence. Just this month, the news featured the story of a young man named Ronnie Smith. He went to Benghazi, Libya with his family as a chemistry teacher where he was trying to share the love of Christ with those lost and hopeless people. He had sent his wife and child home for Christmas, and he was going to join them in just a few days, and he was jogging, and Muslim radicals shot him to death on the sidewalk there as he jogged. Uh, When we were in California, we saw an interview with his wife, and she said through tears, I forgive those who shot my husband, and I love them and wish that they would come to know Christ. You know, the world would say to go to a fierce primitive tribe that kills everybody that even makes contact with them or to go live in a dangerous, dangerous place like Benghazi, Libya, that's not wise. It's not wise in worldly terms. But you know, God's ways are not our ways, are they? Um, In the epilogue to uh, The Shadow of the Almighty, Elizabeth Elliot wrote this, W. Somerset Maugham, in Of Human Bondage, wrote, These old folk had done nothing, and when they died, it would be just as if they had never been. Jim's comment on this was, God, deliver me. And I hope that's your prayer, too, as you hear that, as you think about death. What would it be like if you died and it was as if you had never been in terms of the kingdom of God? That would be to live by man's time. Instead, Jesus, I think, by his example, calls all of us to live by God's time. Jesus lived by God's time, and that means that he fully submitted his life to God's plan. Throughout John's Gospel, there is this repeated theme. We've already seen it in chapter 2. We'll see it again several times. About Jesus' hour had not yet come, and it refers ultimately to the cross. When we get to chapter 12, he will say, The hour has come. Glorify now your son. He'll say it again repeatedly in chapter 17, or or in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, 16, 17. But here, John doesn't use the word hour. He uses the word time. My time is not yet here. 
It's a Greek word that means opportune time. And probably Jesus means it is not God's moment for me to go up to the temple to this feast when you guys go. You can go anytime, but I must go under the direction of my father. He lived by God's agenda, in other words, and that meant five things that we can apply to us. First of all, to live by God's time, be directly accountable to God for how you spend your time. Jesus always had that sense of accountability to the Father for his use of time. Remember back in chapter 2 when the wedding party ran out of wine and Jesus' mother comes and kind of says, do something. And he says, woman, my hour has not yet come. He later made the wine, but he wasn't going to do it on his mother's time or under her influence, but rather in response to the Father. There are other examples of that in the Gospels. But here, he doesn't allow his brother's advice to dominate him. He says, you go up, and then he goes up, but he goes up in God's time as his Father directed him. Now, I'll be the first to admit, it's difficult to to know in the specifics of our daily and weekly schedules, always, what does God want me to do right now in this specific situation? But I think you can, from the Scriptures, determine overall priorities and goals for your life in line with Scripture, and then prayerfully seek to use your time in line with those overall purposes. Um, You're going to give an account to God for how you use your time. And I'm going to be, I hope, gentle and yet blunt when I say this. If you're using gobs and gobs of time every week in front of the tube, whether it's the computer tube or the other tube, uh, you're, you're wasting your life. You're not living by God's time. I've read... Something like one day out of the week, 24 hours a week, is the average amount of time people watch TV. It's over three hours a day. Can you imagine coming to the judgment and God says, all right, I gave you 70 years. How did you use them? And you say, well, I watched some great TV shows, Lord. I don't think that's going to cut it. It's not why he has you on this earth to fill your mind with all that garbage I played some great computer games. Man, I won that one and I I beat that one. Okay, there's a little place for some leisure. I'm not saying it's all bad. I'm just concerned about the amount. Here's how I swore off TV. One day I, I was in college and I got up. I think I watched the Rose Parade first on TV. Then I watched the Cotton Bowl. Then I watched the Sugar Bowl. Then I watched the Rose Bowl. Then I watched the Orange Bowl. And it was 10 o'clock at night, and I felt like I had been eating junk food all day long. You know, it just made me feel rotten. And God just convicted me with, you just wasted one precious day that I gave you on this planet. And a year from now, you won't remember who played or what they did. You just went up and smoke. And I swore off TV. I still watch some, you know, the news while I work out or that kind of thing, but TV's a waste. 
It is a wasteland. It's even worse now than it was 30 years ago, 40 years ago. So I don't regret swearing off the tube. We're all going to give an account. Second thing, to live by God's time, live with the purpose of glorifying God by accomplishing what he has given you to do. John 17, 4, as we saw. In John 4, we saw Jesus said, I've come to do the Father's will and to accomplish his work. He got to three years later and he said, I've done it. I've done it. And that should be our purpose. Glorify God on this earth and do whatever it is he's given you uniquely to do. Now, obviously, I'm not saying you've got to go to the mission field or go into full-time Christian service. God doesn't call everyone to that. That's not what I'm saying. But God does call you to live in a manner where your daily life glorifies him and where you use the gifts that he has given you to glorify him in everything that you do. Now, obviously, all behavior begins in our thoughts. And so you've got to begin by taking every thought captive to Scripture, to the obedience of Christ. You've got to begin by seeking first His kingdom, by setting your mind on those things above, Colossians 3.1, or, or begin by uh, whatever things are true and honorable and right and lovely and pure. Think on these things, Philippians 4.8, that kind of thing. So you begin in your thoughts. And then the scripture says all of our behavior should be dominated by God's love. And so you begin to seek the highest good of others, not of yourself. Sacrificing yourself to build others up and to lift them up. And you live that life, your life that way. You begin to discover, well, how has God gifted me? And you use your gifts for his glory. And you, you work your schedule around that sort of thing. In the third place, to live by God's time, develop a harvest mindset that views every situation in light of eternity. I'm reviewing here what we saw in chapter 4. Jesus is there at the well with that Samaritan woman. The disciples come up with the lunch and they're kind of going, come on, Rabbi, eat. You know, we need to get on the road. Uh, They're thinking totally horizontally. And Jesus was thinking vertically. And he says to him, lift up your eyes on the harvest and look. You know, the fields are white to harvest. And he had a mindset of what is God doing in this situation with these lost people? And this is the moment I can share with them. And I'm not hungry for your food. Thank you. I got other food to eat. And that was Jesus' focus. He was always aware of God's perspective in every situation And he never acted out of selfish motives, but rather he always acted to further the kingdom of God. And he told us in a very familiar verse, Matthew 6, 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, all the things the world so eagerly seeks, they'll be added unto you. But your focus is to seek first his kingdom and righteousness. Now, that's going to vary in specifics with every one of you. You've got to wrestle with that text yourself in terms of saying, how does that work out in my life with my circumstances and my gifts and, and my desires and who I am and all of that? It might mean for some of you, um, right now, you're in the trenches raising kids. You can seek first God's kingdom doing that. 
rear those dear children to know and love the Savior, and uh, you'll fulfill your purpose there in seeking first His kingdom. Uh, maybe it's a family member or a friend or a, a neighbor or some stranger you meet who needs the Lord. And God uses you to be the light into their darkness. And maybe they know the Lord and they just need understanding and they need somebody to sympathize with them and help bring them along in the Lord. and Whatever. Figure it out. But ask the Lord to give you a harvest mindset. Then fourthly, to live by God's time, use reasonable prudence, but do not put personal safety higher than doing the will of God. See, in verse 1, Jesus stayed in Galilee because the Jews were seeking to kill him down in Judea. But then when it was God's time for him to go down to Judea, he didn't say, I can't go there because that's not safe. He went. There's a balance there. Same thing we'll see when we get to chapter 10 and 11. He is across the Jordan ministering because the Jews are seeking to kill him. But when it's time to go up and raise Lazarus from the dead, he says, there are 12 hours in the day. If we walk in the light, got to do God's will, let's go. And the disciples say, they're just trying to kill you. No, it's God's time. Let's go. There's a balance. Most of you know Jeremy Lundgren, who was our youth pastor here, and he's now in seminary, and he's writing his master's thesis on an intriguing topic on which very little has been written. He's writing on a theology of risk and safety. And his thesis is that as Americans, we have elevated personal safety even above doing the will of God sometimes, And uh, as you get into Scripture, there's this interesting balance. I mean, in verse 1, Jesus doesn't go to Judea because he's not safe there. But then in verse uh, 10, he goes to Judea, to Jerusalem. See the same thing with the Apostle Paul. Uh, You know, he escapes from Damascus in a basket over the edge of the wall to flee for his life. But then at other times... He's ready to go into the arena in Ephesus and die if need be to preach the gospel. Or he'll go up to Jerusalem even though he knows he's going to get arrested and maybe killed. I can't give you a hard and fast rule on when do you risk your life for the gospel. But I think the principle is this. Aim to glorify God in your life through the gospel and then trust him for safety with reasonable prudence thrown in there somewhere. It's a hard thing to figure out, but the gospel should be our aim, not safety. And then finally, to live by God's time, be willing to confront our godless culture. Jesus here confronts his brother's worldly perspective by saying, you guys, you can do whatever you want to do because you're not living by God's time, in effect. But Jesus... um, was living by the Father's time. As you read through the Gospels, you realize Jesus never backed away from confronting godlessness and worldliness. Never. Uh, I, I love Luke chapter 11, where a Pharisee, not knowing what he's getting in for, invites Jesus for lunch. And Jesus wasn't a safe lunch guest. And so Jesus walks in the door, and when you went in the door in a Jewish home, there was a basin of water. And it wasn't just for sanitation. 
your hands could be perfectly clean, but you had to go through the ritual, you know, all the washing. If you've been in an Islamic culture, you know what I mean. They do that. And Jesus didn't do it. It was a glaring omission. He didn't do it. And the Pharisee brings that up. You didn't wash. And Jesus, rather than being polite, lays into him, you hypocrite, you wash the outside of the cup, but inside you're full of wickedness. And he just confronts the guy. Well, there's a lawyer, one of the Jewish experts in the Old Testament law sitting there. And he says to Jesus, Luke 11:45, teacher, when you say this, you insult us too. Did Jesus say, I am so sorry. I didn't mean any offense. Please accept my apology. I'll try to be more careful next time. No, Jesus says, says to him, woe to you lawyers as well. And then he lays into the lawyers for their hypocrisy. Now, I'm not saying that we should be rude or that we should be insensitive or that kind of thing to people. Paul says our speech should be both gracious and yet salty, seasoned with salt. I think there's a balance there. Gracious, yes, but salty enough to get their attention and say, hmm, you know, that's different. Um, He tells us we are to be not quarrelsome, kind to all but also able to correct with gentleness those who are in opposition. Balance. I think probably, though, most of us err on the side of being a little too shy and quiet, don't we? You know, you're in a social situation and there's an opportunity to let the gospel come into that situation and you go, I don't know. If you're like me, about an hour later you think, I should have said this. On our trip, I did say something. (laughs) We were... On our way home, we stopped and did a hike in the Joshua Tree, and this guy's hiking up the front of me. He's got shorts on. He's got this tattoo down the back of his calf with all kinds of foreign writing on it. So I said to him, what, what's your tattoo say? He says, oh, it's a Buddhist mantra. And I said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he said, why? And I said, well, because Buddhism is false. That's why. And... Uh, Oh, that's your opinion, you know, and he got all huffy on me and everything. And I just thought, well, I'm going to not let him get away with that. He bothered to tattoo his leg with his stupid Buddhist mantra. I'm going to, I'm going to confront him on that. And uh, I was probably a little too insensitive, but I appreciate it. I don't, I don't agree with everything Rick Warren does, as you know, but recently I really, he, he went up in my stock because he was on CNN with Piers Morgan And Morgan brought up the fact that Warren is opposed to homosexual marriage. And Rick said this, I fear the disapproval of God more than I fear your disapproval or the disapproval of society. Right on, Rick. You know, stand up for the truth there. Now, let me end the message here by just giving you a brief review and some maybe action points that you can Uh, put into practice this week as you think about the new year and wanting to live by God's time. Uh, First of all, I already said it, but let me say it again. Make sure that you have trusted in Jesus Christ personally as your Savior from sin and that your life is subject to His Lordship. If He's Lord of all, He's Lord of your time. And you've got to say, Lord God, how do you want me to use this new year? How do you want me to use it in seeking first your kingdom and righteousness? What does that mean? And apart from that kind of 
under his lordship kind of mindset, everything you do is just going to be a waste. Secondly, write out a one-sentence purpose statement for your life, and then two or three short-term goals, not more because you won't do more than two or three, two or three short-term goals that will help move you in that direction in the, in the coming year. They say, well, where's that in Scripture? Well, I'll grant probably Jesus didn't write out a one-sentence purpose statement, but I'll say this. He was crystal clear on what God had called him to do so that when he got done with it, he knew, I finished it. So he was very clear on his purpose. So was Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9.23, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. He, he also said um, in Philippians 3.10, uh, My aim is that I may know him, that I may know Christ. He told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.7, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, all three of those are right in line. The gospel, knowing Christ, godliness. Paul was clear, that's where I'm going. I, a few years ago, read an interview that um, I think Christianity Today had with Jerry Falwell. And again, I, I was not particularly a Jerry Falwell fan, but he impressed me with his clarity on this. The interviewer asked him, what do you want to be remembered for? Now remember, at this time, Falwell was the pastor of a 20,000-member church that was on TV every week all over the country and maybe world. He had founded and was president of a university, Liberty University. He was the founder of the moral majority and was hobnobbing with all the guys in Washington. What do you want to be remembered for? And you know what he said? He said, I want to be remembered as a godly husband to my, fa- uh, to my wife, a godly father to my children, and a godly pastor of my church. I went, wow, he nailed it. He nailed it. And that helped me write my purpose statement right there. Now, not all of us here are called to be pastors of a church, but at least you can Implement the first couple of those, you know, I want to be a godly person because without that I won't glorify God. And in whatever situation you're in, I want to implement that. Write it out, write out some goals that will help move you that way. Maybe read through the Bible in a year if you've never done it. Memorize some scripture. Um, You know, it's going to vary, but write out some goals. And then, thirdly, Clear your life of all the clutter and busyness that do not relate to your overall purpose. I just read Kevin DeYoung's excellent uh, little book, Crazy Busy. He subtitles it, A Mercifully Short Book About an Important Subject. And uh, you can read it pretty quickly, but he's got some good insight. Uh, Fourth thing, figure out what God has gifted you uniquely to do. And begin serving Him now. Some of you aren't doing anything to serve the Lord. And again, I'm not necessarily talking about a teaching Sunday school kind of mindset, although that would be a good thing. I'm talking about a mindset. Lord, I am Your servant. And today, this week, You've given me things to do to serve You. And begin to do it. Don't wait till the future. You know, I'll serve God after I do this. No, no, no. Right now. 
One way you can do that is sit down and think through the 8 to 15 people that are in your circle of acquaintance that you can influence for Christ. Some of them need to know the gospel. Some of them know Christ, but they need to be discipled. And the fact is, the Great Commission is that all of us who are disciples of Jesus should be all about making disciples who make disciples, right? So in some sphere, you can do that. And then finally, don't despise the mundane as the place where God wants to use you, where he wants you to serve. And what I mean there again is sometimes we think, well, I could go to the mission field or I could... Maybe go to seminary and be a pastor. All right, maybe he's calling you to that. But don't neglect the fact you can glorify God whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. You can glorify him washing the dishes, changing diapers, uh, cleaning the house, shopping for groceries. Whatever he's given you to do. Again, a mindset of God, here I am, I'm your servant. Help me to glorify you with my attitude, with my speech, with my behavior, in whatever situation I'm in. Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray that you would help me and all of my brothers and sisters here to use this new year in the time you give us for your glory to do your work, whatever it is you've given us to do. I pray, Lord, if there are any here who don't know you as Savior and Lord, that they would not begin the new year without trusting in Jesus as their sin-bearer, repenting of their sin, and trusting fully in what He did in shedding His blood on the cross as the atonement that we all need. And I pray, Lord, we would have a fruitful year, a year when You would do far beyond what we ask or even think in bringing others to the Savior in helping us to get through some of the roadblocks that hang us up all the time. And, Lord, we want to shake free of those things. We want to run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he's now seated at your right hand. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.